Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Rick Rule is a favorite in the Real Vision community. If you'd like to meet up with Rick and get a master class from the master himself, you'll want to head to the Rick Rule Symposium on Natural Resource Investing in Florida, July 23rd to the 27th. You'll get access to industry insiders, elite bullion dealers, gold council members, and uranium pros. Just head over to realvision.com forward slash Rick. Welcome back to another edition of Three Ideas. With me today is Tavi Costa, Portfolio Manager at Crestcat Capital. Hi, Tavi. It's great to see you. Hi, Maggie. Looking forward to this. Thanks for, for inviting me. So before we jump into your three ideas, just give us a sense of how you're thinking about the global macro landscape right now. You know, What are you expecting in terms of global growth and inflation, and how is that informing your view? Yeah, I expect this interview to be more about medium long-term views. And I think this is important because I spend most of my time uh, looking to identify some of the macro, biggest macro trends we're going to see in the following five to 10 years. Uh, and I think these three macro ideas will kind of uh, be important ones as, as we move forward. Uh, it's been of my view that we had financial assets being extremely expensive relative to tangible assets. Uh, we've been through a time in 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 history uh, that you know this other periods that we've had such a, a undervalued market for commodities relative to overall equities and in in bonds uh, and fixed income in general. Uh, those uh, tend to be times when you do want to be allocating uh, your time and capital towards uh, towards this this uh, natural resources uh, industries. And so uh, to me, this is an important uh, way of, of trying to capitalize on what I think it's going to be uh, a true generational wealth uh, a period for a lot of investors. Um, I think uh, uh, Brazil is, is going to be an important one, as we're going to discuss. Uh, other commodities will play a role into this as well. Uh, and as far as markets go, markets go as, you know, talking about uh, especially the S&P 500 and other parts of the economy, it's just very difficult to be structurally bullish in the economy today, given especially what we've seen in the credit markets, uh, treasury curve being as inverted as it is, despite the fact that 10-year yields and long-term yields have been rising. They're not helping the fact of a yield curve inversion problem. This is classic of a stagflationary environment. This does, did not happen in the 08 times or, mm. or even in a tech bust uh, period uh, when we've had uh, you know, yield curve inversions surging uh, during those those times. And so this is very similar to the 70s and, and the 80s, uh, where we saw virtually all yields rising, despite the fact that uh, short-term ones were rising faster than long-term ones, causing the yield curve inversion problem. And that is, again, uh, brings back to the attention of uh, owning tangible assets in this period. So we're seeing market correlations change. Um, and I think there's, at the very uh, early stages of some uh, big macro trends to be unleashed. And, you know, let's talk about those as well. Yeah. So th that's very interesting. You're, I, he I heard you say stagflation because one of the things that everyone 
is sort of needs to get right here is your outlook for both the global economy, but also inflation. So on the inflation part, it sounds like you expect inflation. Do, do you think it's just going to be a little sticky around these levels or do you see high inflation? How do you see that playing um, out? I think it's going to be sticky. I, I don't think it's, you know, we've been in this deceleration process that's undeniable in inflation rates recently. And it's been, you know, the response of a lot of things. One is is just the, the fact that we had very high rates of inflation in the past. So the base effects uh, are playing a role into decelerating uh, the pace of consumer prices. But there's other things uh, in consideration, especially underlying issues that cause inflation to stay higher. Uh, it's nothing to do with necessarily AI. I think that will play a role as well as a deflationary uh, more aspect or disinflationary aspect in the economy. But we really have four pillars of inflation that will continue to be, uh, you know, I think uh, at full cylinders, uh, forcing uh, consumer uh, prices to be higher, not lower over time. So despite the fact that inflation has accelerated, it's still higher than historical standards, especially in the last one to two decades period. Um, and so, you know, think about this. I mean, oil is down 45% and inflation still is at the handles that we are seeing today. Yeah. I mean, this is, you know, clearly a sticky environment. So uh, wages and salaries growth is still happening across, especially the lower income folks. Uh, we're still seeing a chronic underinvestments in natural resources that hasn't changed yet. So that's not going to reflect higher supply of those resources because we just haven't seen any spending yet. Um, number three, we, we're seeing reckless amount of fiscal spending uh, in the government. I mean, you know, deficits are back to about 8% of GDP, and we haven't even seen a recession yet. Mm. Uh, and number uh, four is is the deglobalization trends, which you know, it's, I think it's clear for a lot of people uh, that things are changing. And you're seeing G7 economies having to revitalize their manufacturing plants. That's creating a construction boom. Now, you think about all this, I mean, it's hard to believe that it's going to cost you less uh, to build, a, a, you know, to build a, a bridge 10 years from now. It's going to cost you a lot more, in my opinion, from a labor and material perspective. So um, now I think that this is going to push the commodity markets. It's going to push a lot of different things. And some market correlations will be changed. The 60-40 portfolios will be challenged. Um, we're going to see different defensive assets play a role, which we'll talk about here as well. Gold may play an important uh, critical uh, role into those portfolios in the future. Um, and so I'm, I'm really excited about this five to 10 years horizon because I think there's going to be a lot of ways to capitalize on this. Fantastic. Okay, so let's jump in and look at your trades. Um, and so we, we, we'll go through each, but it sounds like across the board, in terms of time horizon, they're all five to 10 year. Is that what you're looking at? Yeah, Roughly, I mean, I, I, time think, horizon? I think you can shorten that to three to five years, three to five. Uh, you know, and this just to make it easier, because I think people okay. are probably going to be like a decade. I'm, I'm not going to be waiting for this. And that's fine. <laughs> I think three to five years is going to be a good portfolio to have. Yeah. Okay, good. So if it's across the board, then we won't repeat that question. But your first trade is going long Brazil as a sector. And so we're going to put up, we're going to look at that through um, the, a Brazil, a very broad Brazil ETF, just so we can sort of have, have a price to talk about it with. There are lots of other options and we can kind of go into that. But why do you like Brazil right now? Well, first, I think it's been, you know, the sentiment, politically speaking, has been very negative regarding Brazilian assets. That's a number one. 
the, the South American economy has been in a bearish environment since uh, we've had the commodities not really performing very well since 2011. You know, you looked at the Brazilian equity market for the last, since the global financial crisis, it has drastically underperformed U.S. equity markets. Uh, it's clearly, uh, you know, it linked to the commodity space, to the natural resource space. If you think about Brazil itself, it's exposed to any commodity you can think of, agricultural commodities, um, from mining and metal, energy, and so forth. So it, it's certainly one of the most commodity-led economies you can find uh, today. Um, and so I look at the political environment with Lula leadership and so forth, which I think I think it's justifiable to have concerns about that. Uh, but we've had that in the past. In the early 2000s, Lula was also came in as a president. And despite that, we still see a, saw an 18-fold appreciation in the Ibo Vespa uh, index during that time, which is amazing. It was just an incredible performance, completely outperforming developed economies at the time. And I think the last two years have been sort of a reflection of a beginning of that. I mean, we've had uh, Brazilian equity markets and assets really outperforming not only the U.S., um, especially yes, uh, last, uh, last uh, year when we had a, a decline in equity markets, but even this year uh, when we've had this euphoria on AI and so forth, Brazil still is outperforming uh, U.S. equities. Uh, and so it's really interesting that there is that environment. Now think about what the Fed has done, you know, if 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 you were uh, if you're a macro investor and you're just thinking about, uh, you know, look, the Fed is likely to be raising rates, uh, you know, up from zero to five uh, percent or so. Um, you know, we're going to be doing QT. What do you think the Brazilian real would be doing? What do you think the Brazilian equities would be doing? It would be demolished, and we didn't see that. Mm -hmm. I love that. I love some some of those. Uh, those situations where you have an asset that are supposed to be performing, uh, underperforming other things, and it, in, in, in fact uh, has done the exact opposite of that. It's been outperforming everything, and so um, you know, it, I think if you think if you look at commodity producers and the correlation between that and equity markets in Brazil, they're very, very highly correlated. Uh, and so, um, you know, I think that if this is the beginning of a bull market in commodities. Uh, which will last a long period of time. Um, I believe that uh, you know institutional uh, investors will uh, at some point start spreading their wings into other parts of alternatives of the commodity space uh, that are likely to perform well in under that environment. And if that's the case, you know the commodity space is very thin and small, uh, and so it won't take long until. Uh, most of those institutions begin to really deploy capital in a place like Brazil, especially at the valuations that they are historically so cheap. Um, you know, you can look at the banks. The banks are insanely cheap. And the price to book levels, every time we've had such a depressed valuations was the beginning, uh, very beginning of a secular market for, for Brazil or uh, a large uh, appreciation in price of those of those. Of those assets, uh, in you know, uh, either from the impeachment of the of Dilma in 2015-2016 uh, environment or the the early 2000s or the global financial crisis, and this is where we are today. It's sort of a, a classic time where I think it's a pivotal moment for folks to be invested. And one more point, just just to finalize, you think about 60/40 portfolios. If you're going to carry 60 uh, of 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 the equity portion of your portfolio. No, I think much, much rather own Brazil in that in that portion. So, to me, that's where this is going to come from. Yes, it can got, get uh, get caught up on a recession and other things. 
Um, however, I do think it's going to outperform U.S. equities over time. Um, in, in, in looking at the, the you know the differential valuations in equity markets in the U.S. Uh, versus Brazil, it's it's really astonishing. So, you know, I'm happy to take that that view for the next three to five years. Yeah, you you made a couple of really interesting points. So we have a we have a, as I mentioned, we can you know broadly look at a a Brazil ETF, iShares uh, MSCI ETF. That's one way to express this, um, and it is up 24 percent year to date. So some people, you know, obviously agree with you and have been having looking at that. The Nasdaq's up 40 percent. So yeah. if you're looking at it just from that point of view, it's not outperforming everything, um, but clearly. For the, you know, everything else has been losing out to people being so concentrated in the NASDAQ. So we do see it moving higher. You made um, two points I want to circle back to as we look at this. One of them is um, given everything that's going on, gone on and the strains on the system, you did not see the markets buckle, the real. Because if you look at six months, one month, even through the regional banking, you know, um, shockwaves that went through the U.S., you have pretty good performance holding up. One month, that broad ETF, 4%, almost 5%. Six months, 18%. Year-to-date, 24%. That paints a different picture than you know the typical emerging market. U.S. catches a cold or sneezes, and emerging markets you know, are on life support. Do you feel yeah. like it's different now that they're much more able to weather that, a, a sort of global crisis or a recession if it comes our way? Well, I think so. I don't think, you know, a lot of the issues in the Brazilian market is already priced in, in my opinion. I mean, it's it's uh, it will get caught up in a global recession. It's not an island. It will be certainly uh, get caught up in, in a in a severe economic downturn. Uh, you were referring to NASDAQ because NASDAQ has a lot of technology uh, exposure. If you look at the S&P and equal weighted index, you can see uh, that Ibovespa is 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 looking really attractive, especially the equal weighted index in Brazil as well, which I think is even more interesting. Or small cap companies in in Brazil as well. Um, so there's there's different ways to be uh, allocating capital there. I think there's a lot of state owned companies uh, that you should be uh, not worried about, but but knowing that you're investing in in companies that have a large exposure to the government. And it's not the most efficient way to run a business in general. So, you know, that is one portion of it that maybe uh, EWZ should be uh, taken into consideration. You know, I think uh, uh, for the sake of this of this segment, uh, I, I think it's important, but maybe the EWZ, I do believe, will outperform uh, the S&P. But I think there's a lot of opportunity for stock picking in Brazil. You know, Brazil is a, is a place where uh, I think because of the higher interest rates, when you look at the investors that are part of the market, it's, a, it's very much a value investing community. Uh, mm. Everyone is, it's very different in the US where folks are much more focused on growth and, and technology and other things. And that is, you know, just the reflection of having higher costs of capital uh, for a real long time. And so, um, no, to me, this is not a problem. It just means that there's a lot of, uh, you know, equity markets will reflect uh, some of those opportunities on the value side in a, in a big way. And at some point, that's going to have to have a shift in the U.S. as well in terms of, of how we approach uh, equity markets. I do believe this is part of a trend towards value investing coming back and, and mm. you know, and profitability and, and so forth. As we see, uh, interest rates continue to stay higher globally. So 
um, you know, I, I, if you look at profitability, I mean, Brazilian companies are one of the most profitable uh, businesses in the world today. The banks have always been very profitable, but especially now relative to their prices, it's getting sort of absurd how cheap they are. Some of them trading at low single digits PE ratios um, in an environment that you may see, you know, oil. Let's just look at oil itself because oil has a very strong link to uh, to uh, to the, those uh, that that economy. You know, it's hard to believe that Brazil won't perform well uh, if oil prices perform well. And oil already had a forty five percent decline in, mm. in prices recently. And Brazilian equities held up. You know, held up very very well. Agricultural commodities have done terribly in the last uh, what uh, eight months or so. And despite that, Brazilian equities have held up very well. And so, um, you know, I think this is a signal that. Uh, there are capital inflows coming into that uh, place. And, um, you know, as a Brazilian, I am certainly seeing that shift uh, firsthand. Uh, and I think this is just the beginning. It's not not the end. And a lot of people are going to ignore that just because of the political leadership again. And, and I think that's just hiding a much bigger, um, you know, investment idea that is likely to play out in the next three to five years. I should point out, although you are Brazilian, um, I think we in a, in a show we did together uh, before, you mentioned that you're not always bullish on Brazil, right? There is a long period where you would not have been, this would not have been one of your trade ideas. Well, I, I was not bullish even on commodities. Uh, you know, I, I've turned a lot more bullish in commodities after, um, I'm very proud of saying that I was probably the first person to start doing charts on CapEx of natural resources. And that really caught my attention at the time. I was starting to aggregate all the industries and looking at overall CapEx for the, for the space relative to technology and other industries. Although they're not capital intensive uh, businesses, uh, you can still see the flows of capital towards one side of the uh, one sector or two relative to basic necessities of the world. Now, I didn't predict COVID. I had no idea a lot of those things were going to happen at all. But um, usually in macro, you see some very large historical dislocations and you just don't know what the trigger really is. And, and then eventually something triggers a, a very large bull market, um, which is usually happens at a time when that asset is extremely unloved. You know, gold is a great example. I mean, in, in the 90s, for instance, back in late 90s, when the tech bust was starting to occur, um, gold was down 40% in the last 20 years. Who in the right minds wanted to invest in gold? Can you imagine if we had Twitter at that time, I think people would have been, uh, you know, completely dismissing that as an opportunity, saying this is not going to be an opportunity to be invested in the, in, the, in the metal and so forth. And that was the very bottom of the market where gold entered a gold cycle or a cycle uh, which only happened in, in the 70s and early 2000s. Right. All right, Tavi, you're jumping ahead. You're jumping ahead on your trades. But I, oh, I see what you mean about the dislocation and and it being you know time for Brazil right now with what sounds like a really tandem story of commodities and also what's happening domestically in Brazil. I, I liked your comment about it being a way to play commodities, a different way to play the commodity um, investment theme um, because there's just not enough maybe liquidity in all those markets. Um, so we know your time horizon. What would make you change your mind on this? What would what would upend this and and get you out of this trade? Well, my point about that was that if you see capex capex for most of those industries to surge, 
uh, and you start seeing major discoveries happen and you start seeing the supply picture change completely because uh, the demand side, it will, it will shift over time. It's more cyclical, um, much more elastic. Uh, the supply is a lot more inelastic. So if we do see some sort of technology that changes that picture in the supply side drastically over the medium term, no, I think that that's that's that would be an important shift. Um, you know, I, I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, personally, don't think that that would be the case. Some huge shift in productivity caused by uh, by a large increase of supply of those commodities uh, could be the case. Maybe a trend towards a globalized environment again. Mm. Um, you know, that that could that could happen. Uh, that's not my view. I don't think that those trends, just like the labor changes, uh, where we're seeing the pressure of of people asking for higher wages and salaries, those are usually very long-term trends. They, trend, they tend to really develop on themselves over time and they become secular moves. And the same happens with globalization. And so we've had a long period of a globalized environment where folks were able to take advantage of, uh, of low wages and salaries from other countries like China. Um, and I think that companies are now going above and beyond to shift away from that dependency on China and rebuild their own manufacturing onshore, and if that's the case, you know that's going to create a large increase of uh, of of construction spending and other things. And one last thing would be the debt problem. I mean, if the debt problem is likely to get better from here, in terms of especially the U.S. deficit issue and the alarming pace we're going ter in terms of compounding the debt issue, you know, then that's that probably uh, is not gonna be good for, for commodities. And that means we're more like in the world that we've had over the last uh, 20 years when, you know, with a low interest rate environment, high growth uh, companies making, you know, incredible profits and, and, and being able to focus on growth solely. Um, and uh, I'm not sure that's gonna be the case here. Mm. So I'm I'm just going to spend a little bit extra time on this one because not everyone has Brazil, and we get a lot of questions about whether there should they should have more international exposure, emerging market market exposure. So we put a broad ETF up, but would you, depending on this, is as always not specific investment advice for people. We just want to caveat that only the individuals can know their risk appetite. But for somebody who is interested in going a little further down in this. Um, would you also recommend, or do you, uh, or do you think it's a good idea for them to investigate more sector specific, or you know, is there currency issues they have to think about? The reason people go into the broad ETFs is because they're, in addition to being pretty liquid, also they don't have to worry about some of that. But is it worth thinking about being more specific in Brazil? I think there's a lot of ways to capitalize in Brazil. I prefer not necessarily owning EWZ, although we own a small position even in in our uh, strategies. Uh, but I do think that EWZ is, is you know, there are better ways to play that in terms of, of looking for, you know, doing stock picking in general. Uh, the banks look extremely attractive. I don't think the banks are going away anytime soon. It seems like, you know, you think about some parts of the market that have been kind of priced out, like, you know, coal businesses and other things globally, have, you know, because of the shift towards electrification and so forth, have caused those businesses' valuations to be extremely low, uh, meaning that they are likely to go out of business in the next decade or so. That's kind of how the banks in Brazil are being priced today. And I don't think that will be the case. Some of those banks have been in business for decades. They are extremely profitable. If you're of the belief that the economy will prosper, 
especially because of its commodity exposure. Um, no, that that's going to be an interesting way to play this. Um, and Can there you are, play them through the ADRs? Are there ADRs in the U.S. that you play them through? Oh, do you have to? Absolutely. I think ADRs are one of the ways to do it. Uh, um, and I would certainly welcome that way because uh, there are some tax issues if you're going to own uh, Brazilian equities in the Brazilian exchange, FYI. So, yeah. you know, you should be aware of that. But boy, some of those businesses pay massive dividends as well. And I'm not talking about the banks right now, but there's some other either even commodity businesses that even in a market when commodities were not performing very well, uh, were still incredibly profitable. We have to understand these businesses, they operate in an environment uh, for decades with high uh, rates and high cost of capital, they are used to, uh, you know, having finding a way to be profitable. Other uh, otherwise, they're out of business. Yeah, and so it's a, a great point. Yeah, and so you know, I think there's many. There are many industries one could focus on um, in terms of that. I mean, we like a lot of the commodity ones. I think there are steel producers that are really interesting to export to developed economies. Um, I think there are <clears throat> a lot of also other commodity businesses in the energy space. I mean, Petrobras, for instance, is a state-owned company. It's a large weight of, of the EWZ, but you know, you don't have to own Petrobras. Petrobras has actually been spinning off a lot of their assets and creating a privatization play of those assets of companies that have been taking up those and acquiring those uh, those parts of the, those projects uh, to then you know turn into their own businesses. And so that is a very interesting way to uh, to be exposed to high quality assets. I mean, Petrobras, despite the fact that it's one of the most inefficient companies, uh, you know, in in the world, unfortunately, it is not only profitable but has one of the best acreage uh, you can find in the world in terms of oil. And so, it's really, really high quality assets. And so, you know, if they're going to be spending off some of those to other companies that can be efficient, I'm all in. I, I, I want to understand, and I want to, you know, I want to see if I, if there's a, a way to invest in those in those uh, new projects. So um, I think there's a lot of opportunities there. In the metals and mining side, um, I would I would urge people to also look at things because the trends in terms of, uh, of of being very unexplored. Uh, Brazil still, despite the fact that it was explored in the past, but it's still very unexplored compared to other parts of the world, it has very similar geological trends than Africa and other places that are, you know, very rich mineral areas. And so, you know, we have been investing in that part of the, of uh, that industry in, in, in that part of the economy. And so, um, yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of ways to skin the cat here in terms of, uh, of how to, uh, how to play this Brazilian trend. Fantastic. I, I think I just saw a headline that Brazil may be on track to be the fourth largest oil uh, producer, um, which is incredible. Okay, so let's move on to that. So we had a lot, a lot of information there and a range for people, depending on your comfort level of dipping your toe in or for those who are a little bit more ambitious. Um, great to have that ex extra information, not only about sectors, but about those Petrobras spinoffs. That was super interesting. So your second trade is long the energy industry. Um, I, and so I think you gave us a little background, but why talk to us a little about, about the price action. So we know your bullish commodities, the deglobalization, the underinvestment in the space, but it's been brutal, right? This year when you're looking at energy. So do you feel it's bottomed? Why is this one of your picks? Well, it's one of the reasons is because the price reaction of the last six to, you know, six months or so it's been, 
know, we've had the, the strategic petroleum reserves declining significantly, playing a big role into uh, really suppressing the price of oil recently. Um, and uh, I don't think that the in terms of the geopolitical tension in the world is hasn't really shifted anywhere, uh, you know, to a better position at all. In fact, I think that the policy making in, in the U.S. has really uh, trying to uh, strangle this uh, this rise in, in oil prices, but I think that's completely unsustainable. You're looking at you know rigs, operating rigs for most of those companies still uh, contracting for the first time in you know since the 2020. Uh, you look at the valuation of those companies today; they are extremely profitable. Um, some of them trading at the best uh, profitability yields that we've seen in history. Um, some of them pay very high dividends as well, which. Uh, you know, it's. I think it's it's quite interesting. Um, so, and another point to be made is, if you looked at in the last, uh, you know, the last two to three years, where energy companies in 2021 and 2022 were uh, the best performing, had you know, not only one of the best performing sectors, but also uh, had one of their best years in history uh, in the last 30 years, back to back, incredible annual returns. Um, if you look at those times and you backtest to see what are the companies that did very well, we're not the businesses that are being conservative or the companies that are really expending CapEx, uh, that are expending production, uh, and not the ones that are paying, you know, doing massive buybacks and doing massive dividends. The entire sector did very well, but if you look at the best performing companies, we're the ones that are being aggressive, they're being uh, rewarded for that, for those, for that approach. And I think that's really interesting. So, um, you know, I think it's important to have a focus on, you know, mid-cap companies, especially. I think there's a lot of opportunities in that part. Um, you know, we know that there are other mega-cap companies in, or I would say larger-cap companies in the in the oil space that also look attractive uh, over the long term. Um, and again, if I looked at the 60-40 portfolio, I would like that my uh, my equity portion to be very, uh, a very large in the in this in this in this sector. I think that that's uh, another way to be um, you know be able to be still long equities. Uh, but you know knowing that is if you have a recession, things could be uh, you know a little a little rough. Um, but I'm I'm willing to take that risk because I think there are other parts of my portfolio that can perform well in a recession as well that can protect towards that. And final point is if you look across the last 20 years in oil prices. Now we've had a you know recessions usually depending on the recession. So 2020 was uh, a unique one, but if you looked at even in 08 or so, oil prices declined close to 75 percent or so. And then you have other types of recessions where you know capex trends are very low, historical low, uh, where there's not really abundance of capital spending in the industry. Uh, those are the early 2000s. Oil prices declined about 45 or so percent from peak to, to trough and during that time and bottom much first uh, or uh, way before than the overall equity market, which today, I mean, we already had a 45 percent decline. What's, you know, what, the, you know, can we see another 15, 20 percent additional decline? I'm willing to take that risk relative to what I think it's the upside. Um, now, I think the upside could be tremendous. Uh, and if that's the case, most of those businesses that are trading you know, with massive free cash flow yields. Um, and as I said, some of them still pay dividends uh, in a big way. Now, I think this seems to be an attractive way to be playing the market here. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very excited about that too. Yeah. And you like the equity side of it as opposed to the actual commodity to actually ha hold oil. I like both, but I would say, 
um, you know, the equities look really, really interesting just because of the valuation proposition. Um, you know, I think, by the way, with Brazil and oil, I think you can play in the bond market too. Um, you know, they're, they all pay high yields right now. And, uh, you know, which I think uh, most of those companies uh, look relatively safe in terms of leverage and obviously will depend on each bond you're talking about. But uh, I think there are a lot of uh, bond market plays in, in, in emerging markets and in, in oil overall. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think there's uh, certainly ways to be, uh, um, you know, it's, look, those companies have never been this profitable. It's, it's almost, uh, it's insane to, uh, to do any value analysis in, in those, in this part of the sector of the economy. Um, and especially at a time when, when, you know, cost of capital is higher, relatively higher, they're still being able to be, uh, you know, basically printing money today. And when I think about, you know, maybe even an opportunity to a lot of folks that I've been kind of chasing would be some of those companies that start to use some of their capital to diversify a little bit and start buying other parts of commodities that are really interesting, like metals and mining and other things that could be interesting too. But that's another discussion. But yeah. Um, anyways, that's, you know. But they're I, taking that time. Just to be clear, when you're talking about the cor uh, bond market, you're talking about corporate bonds of these uh, oil and gas companies. Are you talking about uh, high, gr high grade? Are you talking about investment grade? Or would you be willing to look at something further down the credit? Def definitely willing to go further down and, and look at it. Um, I think um, we don't manage uh, credit that way mm -hmm. in, in, at Crescent, but I I look at it and I, you know, even for myself and I think I think for folks uh, looking uh, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, I think it's stability in terms of yields and so forth. I think that could be a very interesting play um, in a world where, you know, uh, yes, I mean, you're still seeing risk-free rates being so high. I think you can go down deep into that market and find some double-digit yields uh, that could be very attractive for investors. And so, you know, you know, I think I think that's that's one way to to uh, to play this in the emerging markets, uh, or I should say, in Brazil specifically. I think you know, sovereign bonds also look really attractive as well. So just, just to make that point, but- uh, Yeah, we, 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 and we rarely talk about that and we, we probably should a little bit more. So um, what would, what if anything would change your mind on the uh, long energy industry? By the way, they're all tied up to the same idea of Brazil. And so it'd be very similar situation with Brazil, but I think more, more uh, related to, you know, the market being right about, about the terminal rate of the businesses in the oil space, because right now, clearly the market is pricing in that some of those companies will be out of business in five to 10 years. If you believe it's gonna be a trend that it will take longer than that, especially this transition in the green revolution, which I firmly believe it will take a lot longer than, than people are expecting, especially because of the supply needs that we're gonna need of metals and knowing that, uh, we're not seeing the necessary investments and the CapEx trends are very, very low in terms of that space and how inelastic the supply of those things are. It's difficult to believe we're going to see a full transition, you know, as short as, as a five-year trend. And so if that's the case, a lot of companies um, are priced very wrong and, and deserve to be, uh, to have a much uh, lower free cash flow yield over the years, meaning that the prices are going to be rising relative to how much money they make. Um, so yeah, I think that part with, if, if the market is right, if, and we're, we do see a full transition much quicker than I think will happen, 
then yeah, then my my trade is probably wrong. My, my trade is most likely wrong. And so, and that aside with um, you know just the, the other issues of deglobalization and so forth, uh, which we've had over 2011 to 2020 or so, uh, very globalized environment. You look at commodity prices; they have gone nowhere but lower during that period. And so. You know, if you are a believer that we're going to go to another environment like that, yeah, I think that that trade is not going to play well. So recession, I'm less concerned about that because I think we already had a 45% decline here. We're talking a three to five year horizon. I'm happy to take a bull uh, stake on, on, on or bullish stake on, uh, on energy in general. Because I, I think this is, even if we have a pullback, I think we're going to return as strongly over the horizon. And so your third trade is, as you say, in the commodity, a part of this narrative, I think, but that's gold, long gold. Uh, so why gold now? Well, so now going back to, I want to almost really talk about the 60-40 situation as I speak about these trends because they're all part of this. And I looked at the the the, the bond you know, market allocation that we have in those traditional portfolios, I think gold should play a much bigger role into those. Uh, and I think gold will reemerge as not only a central bank asset, which has been the case recently, um, but also as an inflation hedge over time as well. And, you know, I, I think about the last two gold cycles we've had in history, which was one in the 70s, one in the early 2000s, it's very interesting how they played out. You know, early 70s, we had an inflationary regime. Um, you know, there was a time when discoveries of gold were basically inexistent. It was very difficult to find gold. Um, and uh, in that time, we had also production for the metal declining over almost 10 years. And if you looked at that, you know, clearly that was a time when gold prices uh, went up significantly. Along with that, certainly the miners did very well. In the early 2000s, a completely different market really unleashed a, another second gold cycle. And that time, uh, if, you, if you think about the, the drivers, one of them was China was entering the WTO, was exporting close to 3 to 2% of the, of the global exports at that time. And, and at the end of that trend, was exporting close to 15 to 20%, depending on the year, which is all really interesting. And during that time, it went through a construction boom. Uh, and that created not only a bull market for uh, commodities, but especially for gold. Uh, at, at that time as well, if you look at the price of gold relative to financial assets, equities and bonds, gold was really cheap. And today that's certainly the case. And when I think about the supporting points to why I own the metal today, we have falling gold production already by the major companies. We have central banks accumulating assets or accumulating gold like we have only seen back in the 70s, even in the early 2000s, we didn't see that. Uh, we have G7 economies really uh, seeing a construction boom recently, and which I think will drive commodities even further as we see G7 economies uh, kind of rebuilding uh, their manufacturing plants. We have gold really cheap relative to overall financial assets. We have one thing that we didn't see in the 70s and in the early 2000s, is the debt problem. The debt problem today is way more severe than those decades. Um, the deficit issue, in the early 2000s, we even saw a surplus at some point in fiscal deficit. <laughs> so, you know, this is going to be more different than what we saw back then. 
Um, the ultra conservatism of the miners, I mean, this is something we did see in the early 2000s a little bit. Today, it's a lot more pronounced. Uh, we're seeing gold companies move away from gold and start looking at copper exposure, uh, which is really interesting. I, I know the main reason for that is institutional attractiveness of capital saying, hey, you know, let's focus on electrification. Gold is, you know, it's not used for anything. So we shouldn't be focused on that. And that's just the wrong time to do it when central banks are actually accumulating the, the, the metal. And one thing I talk about a lot is the trifecta of macro imbalances, the debt problem of the 40s, the inflation of the 70s, and the valuation problem of the late 90s that will create, in my opinion, a you know a real political constraint that will cause tangible assets to rise. And gold is likely at the beginning of a third gold cycle here. So, you know, I think we'll play as a defensive way and very a very uh, smart uh, manner to really enhance the quality of a portfolio on a defensive aspect. Yeah. I, I, I'm glad that you you explained it because it really sounds like this is a portfolio construction sort of hedging uh, call of yours, um, it, but not, not any of the other precious metals because this is the competition we see. There's so much disappointment with gold and then people say, well, how about silver? How about copper? How about some of these other metals? Maybe even rare earth metals where there's just, they see more of a use case. Maybe they could play both of those roles, but you like the straight play on gold. Well, I was asked to have a few ideas. So that's why I said gold. But uh, <laughs> if you ask me for more, I think silver is the cheapest metal on earth. Um, I think- So it's not at the exclusion of those, but it's just no. one that you like for all the reasons you put forward. But and what would change that? But to your point, on a portfolio construction, you need a defensive asset. I would own gold in that in that front. What would change my mind? Look, a bet against gold is a bet that the debt problem is going to be resolved and will improve over time. You looked at gold versus the debt problem means that you know back in the '40s when we had a debt problem similar to we have what we have today, you you can look at the price of gold. It was pegged, right? Gold prices are pegged to the dollar. You know, if you're running money at that time, you wouldn't buy gold because it wouldn't make a lot of sense. You, you would make a zero return on your investment. Um, and so, you know, that time it wasn't the way to play this. But since the 70s, when gold began to uh, to float, uh, you know, more naturally, what you saw was the deep bag of that happened with uh, the fact that that problem began to really uh, compound and you can see that the price of gold and the price of or the the debt issue relative to GDP basically move in the same direction every you know every decade basically. And so, if you're a believer that the debt problem is going to be uh, getting better, then yeah, that's going to change my mind. I'm probably wrong on gold. Um, that's not my belief at all. And this you know this skepticism towards the metal recently it's completely unwarranted because. Um, it is one of the few assets that is still near record levels in prices. Um, it, it wasn't completely, you know, performing uh, poorly over the years. It's just, it's just, uh, you know, and by the way, like I said before, uh, the fact that, that a lot of people talk about how gold has underperformed some other assets over the last, uh, call it 10 or 20 years, that is the main reason why it should be in your radar. That's not the reason why you should ignore it. The fact that it has underperformed, just like the Brazilian equities and others, um, it's why you should be paying attention to. And I, I will, you know, really urge people to look at what happened in uh, a peak 80s 
uh, or of gold prices all the way to uh, late 90s or early 2000s, where gold was down 40 or 70% in prices. Uh, and during that time, you know, a lot of people were very uh, completely skeptics about the metal. And that was the very beginning of a major bull market. I think that we are going to break out to new highs here uh, very soon. And then once that happens, we're going to do a, you know, we're going to go substantially higher in prices. And that's what's going to create the influx of capital that we need in this uh, mining industry as well. Great stuff. We have a question. It's a little specific, so I have no idea uh, whether you, um, but it kind of fits in with your narrative. No idea whether you're looking at it. Uh, we had <clears throat> a question um, from, who did it come in from? I can't even remember. Uh, William, are you invested in uh, GGB? That's a producer of steel in America's with steel mills in Brazil, Argentina, Colombia, throughout Latin America. Are you familiar with that, Tavi? Is that something that you like? Girdell, uh, yes, I do own, a, it's, I should say, full disclosure, it's uh, our largest uh, individual position in Brazil. Uh, love the company. I think if we're going to see South America playing a larger role, creating relationships with developed economies, Brazil is a very neutral geopolitical player, meaning it sells things to the US, to China, to Russia, uh, which is really interesting. World War II, Brazil didn't didn't really pick a side, <laughs> and uh, recently, uh, you know, you know, with the Russian invasion, Brazil didn't pick a side. It's usually very neutral. It, it likes to stay on its own lane, and you know, I think that if that's going to be the case, where we're going to see uh, either further developments of natural resources in developed economies, or they are going to be creating relationships with other places where they can get those resources from. And I think Brazil is going to be one of those. And already exports to a lot of developed economies. Um, and Gerdau is, is one of them. It's going to be a, an interesting uh, uh, company that is positioned to perform well if we see a construction boom in most of the uh, developed economies. So, yes, it is. A, and pays high dividends, too, uh, on top of it. So, and it's extremely cheap. Uh, today, in my opinion, in terms of multiples and and so forth, relative to either even other businesses in the same realm across the globe. So, no, I think that's a, a very interesting uh, position. And j just for those of you who are listening who may not be in front of a, a terminal or a computer screen, um, the ADR for that um, GGB is uh, five dollars thirty cents. Um, another question from Christopher, I think this speaks to what would what would change your mind on a couple of your trades, and he's wondering. Um, if the economic strength we see here in the U.S. is just the tail end of, uh, we know Christopher really knows this stuff, tail end of an Austrian crack-up boom that may give way to a sudden and severe bout of weakness like 1937. But do you think that this, we keep talking about the resilience of the U.S. economy and the you know, uh, and of the consumer and everyone pushing out their recession, is it just the last throes of all that fiscal spend and that maybe not only are we going to hit recession, but it could be a pretty deep and 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 difficult one, Tavi. Is that something that you worry about? Look, I think from a recession perspective, I'm very bearish on the global on the global economy, especially the US. Um, I think that the this idea that we can have a total crash and you know I'm I'm I think it's possible, the more I think about this, I think it's going to be more of a drag in the overall economy over time uh, that, you know, as we see a transition from folks moving away capital from the U.S. towards other 
opportunities that are much cheaper in valuations. Um, I think that there's a reason why I kept uh, this energy position in this sort of portfolio construction. If the economy is going to be booming here in the near future, I can't imagine that wouldn't be positive for for oil or copper and other things. And so, no, I think that's that's one way to play that. Um, emerging markets could do very well if it's a booming economy as well, global economy forced by but the U.S. What if it's not? What if it's uh, oh versus the U.S.? So you think so? Do you think that the global economy can perform well even if the U.S. struggles? Look, if it's not, it's it's a risk for my oil trade. I don't think it's a risk for my gold trade. I think I think the gold trade is going to perform very well. That's why uh, you put gold on there as one of your three ideas as a hedge, right? That's right. That's my hedge on. Look, I think you need uh, anyone need to think about a. Um, I mean, there's a lot of possibilities here. We manage money with so many, you know, multi-factor analysis of what if there's a recession? What if what if the valuation of equity markets are too frothy and, and can't sustain? What if we don't see a growth in earnings like a lot of people think in the AI space? Or, you know, what if uh, what if something happens geopolitically that is even worse than what we saw during this Russian invasion and even, you know, kind of. Uh, you know, completely intensify, magnifying those trends. Um, I think that clearly, you know, commodities are really cheap relative to overall equities. And so over time, you can see a recession and something can happen with some of the more cyclical commodities like copper and oil, and even emerging markets can get caught up in those. They're not islands. They will they will be, you know, tying hands with, uh, with the U.S. and if there is a, uh, a problem. But I think that over time, what we saw is during stagflationary periods or times that inflation is running hotter than historical standards, commodities and commodity businesses actually don't perform as bad as the overall equity market, particularly at a time when overall equity market is as expensive as it is. And so, yeah, we may see a 10, 15% pullback or something along those lines. And remember, oil is already down 45%. So, you know, can he go down to 70%? Sure. I mean, it, you know, it could, but I think the upside is a lot more attractive. Early 2000s, we did see a full-blown recession. How much did oil prices decline during that time? 45%. That's exactly what we just saw. And so, you know, is it possibility that we already seen a lot of this pain in oil? Yeah, it's possible. The fundamentals look like that. I mean, if you look at you know, amount of production, um, you know, the way companies are behaving um, in terms of the operating rigs. Uh, is this a reflection of the government selling their strategic petroleum reserves? They can't do that forever. That's going to end at some point. And so, you know, I think that there's possibilities there in the oil space and why I think this portfolio construction is going to look really interesting. Great stuff. Tavi, thank you so much for your three ideas. We appreciate it. As always, it was great to catch up with you. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. And thanks to all of you. We'll see you again. Take care and good luck out there. Rick Rule. Rick Rule is a favorite of the Real Vision community. If you'd like to meet Rick and get a masterclass from the master himself, 
you'll want to head to the Rick Rule Symposium on Natural Resource Investing in Florida, July 23 to 27. You'll get access to industry insiders, elite bullion dealers, gold council members, and uranium pros. Just head over to realvision.com slash rick for tickets. That's realvision.com slash rick.